Before we get to today's show, I want to ask you all for a big favor. Make sure you leave a rating or review. If you listen to the podcast, if you get value out of it, let us know. Leave a rating or review for two reasons. Number one, it helps other people find the show. It makes sure that we're climbing up the charts. And number two, it lets us know that we're doing something right. I read all the ratings and reviews. I want to know what you guys like. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at RealJohnDavids and hashtag making it. You can talk to me. I want to know what you guys think. Now let's get to today's show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. We are live with Tom Goodwin. Tom, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you very much for having me on, John. Absolutely. Absolutely. So a lot of people will know you from LinkedIn, where I discovered you and about 700,000 followers love what you post. And, and it's awesome. If you don't know, I definitely follow Tom on LinkedIn. I guess my first question, really, I wanted to get your background. But before even that, how did you get started on LinkedIn? That's a very good question. The honest answer is I don't really know. Uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm supposed to say, you know, I'm a genius. And I had this content marketing strategy. And I recruited a publicist. And you know, I had this very thoughtful approach towards how to build a personal brand on these things. But I kind of, I don't really like all that stuff, to be honest. I don't really like this era of personal brands. I just, I think I've got quite a lot of opinions. And I think one thing that I was brought up with was a lack of fear and a sense that if you've got interesting things to say, it's okay to say them. And I, you know, I kept on posting things, which apparently people liked, you know, and apparently people then followed me and then apparently people then are more likely to follow you. And it, and it just sort of built that way. But there's no sort of genius or strategy or, or thought behind it. It's all accidental. That's amazing. And, and your stuff really is compelling and you make people think. We're going to get into, uh, into some <laughs> of your latest posts and, and, and get your positions in a minute. Okay. But why don't you just give us a quick minute on your background and yeah. how you got to where you are today? I was going to say, um, in short, I never really knew what I wanted to do for a living. I found everything in the world interesting. I studied architecture because I thought it'd be fun. I then moved into advertising because it was a sort of more commercial and fast-moving world than architecture. I then started doing lots of work with a company like Nokia, looking at how the future would be and what would mobile phones mean for the future. So I got very, very interested in technology, kind of, you know, futurism, kind of, but a very applied sort of practical form of it. And then I was very aware working in advertising that the internet happened and everything was quite different and no one was really talking about it. We'd go to conferences and people would say stuff that was absolute nonsense. People would be in meetings and say things I didn't think were true. And I just started becoming quite opinionated by it. Then I started writing about it because I was kind of annoyed with the types of conversations we were having. And because I was kind of saying the obvious stuff that everyone was thinking, but nobody was saying because it was different, um, my work started doing well. You know, I started writing more articles. I started posting more to places like, like LinkedIn. And then I sort of became a, a sort of author of a book because someone wanted me to write a book. And then I became a sort of keynote presenter. And then I became a sort of TV presenter. But everything that's happened has happened because of inbound. You know, people sort of ask me to do stuff. And then I sort of say no, because it's a lot of work and it's scary. And then after a few days, I think I'll stuff it. You know, let's do something that's, that's difficult for once. Yeah. And, and so at companies like Publicis and Havas IPG, these are very large uh, yes. agency hold codes. Were you a 
I mean, I can't, don't take this the wrong way, but I can't imagine you were an easy employee. You mean you're 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 opinionated. You're you're you've got definitely against the grain. Was that something that came out? Uh, no, very very much so. I think it's odd. I think one can approach this and think, goodness me, it must have been hard because you were in a meeting and you'd say things that you believed and you would say different stuff and you might turn down some meetings and you might come up with advice which is quite different to other people. And I think companies did find it hard. But also, I think we have a very strange sense of what a day should be like. And I think people are obsessed with everything being easy and comfortable and consensus and alignment. And actually, all progress really comes from, you know, unreasonable people. All progress comes from mistakes. All progress comes from a sense of dissent. And I think, you know, I think I was to blame by being a little bit rambunctious and a little bit naive. But I think also companies could do a much better job of appreciating the importance of, of sort of diversity of opinion. And so where did that lead you to? What, what, what are you doing today? I left Publicis to set up my own consultancy, which basically is the kind of antithesis to large management consultancies. A lot of business theory. Actually, let me, let me say this. I, I don't believe that the world is changing faster than ever. I'm not one of these people that sort of goes around saying, ooh, the metaverse, 5G, AI, you know, you're screwed unless you have a blockchain strategy. I'm not like that at all. I do think the world significantly changed about 10 years ago when the smartphone went to, you know, three to six billion people, 3G and then 4G sweeps across the world. I think that had a huge impact on business models, um, on unit economics, on consumer expectations. And I think what happened is that companies have not really appreciated that fundamental shift. And what we have right now is, you know, hundreds of millions of, of dollars spent on digital transformation, you know, billions of dollars spent on managing consultancies. And mostly these are companies that get paid on retainer to never really solve the problems. They get paid to recycle the thinking from the 1970s and 80s. And they get paid as a sort of insurance policy for CEOs that don't really want to change. You know, we saw that recently at CNN Plus, where, you know, no one got fired at CNN because they'd recruited McKinsey, who gave them particularly bizarre numbers on expectations on users and subscribers. And no one gets fired because they can just blame McKinsey. So I'm the sort of antithesis to that. I'm sort of rambunctious. I'm empathetic. I'm imaginative. I'm future focused. I'm driven by sort of creativity and solving problems in different ways. And more than anything else, working around the newly possible rather than the past. Yeah, that, that's an interesting take. And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and, and folks who run large companies, but as entrepreneurs and not professional CEOs per se. And the, for lack of a better word, the bashing of the consultancies and you know the idea that consultants really don't do a whole lot of good because their, their interests aren't necessarily aligned. Why do you think that they are such a prominent presence at so many large companies? Because as you said, a lot of the time they make suggestions based on data. I don't know where they get this data from, but who thought we needed a new streaming service? It's a very, very good question. I mean, the, the sort of lazy answer is, you know, this comes from the world of B2B sales. You know, no one ever got fired for buying an IBM. It, it's that sort of thinking. I think the reality is that very large companies have often succeeded for a long time by being brilliant at what they do. And they're now sort of faced with all this provocation, sort of poking them saying, you know, what are you doing about Web3? You know, what are you doing about the metaverse? And that creates these sort of doubts. And I think most companies don't really want to address those things, but they want to be seen to be addressing those things. They want to 
they want to have a sort of a picture in their annual reports of someone with a VR headset. You know, they want someone to write a few hundred words about an innovation day that recently happened. So I think they're all looking for ways to brush off this change as if it's a sort of problem. They're all looking for ways to kind of be seen to be addressing it in a way that doesn't actually derail them from what they think their job is to do. And therefore, I think most of it, you know, this sounds quite sort of cynical and and I'm not a cynical person, but I think quite a lot of this work with management consultancies is quite cynical. You know, if you look at all of the work that's ever been done by these companies, nothing of note has ever been accomplished. You know, if you ever try and rent a car with Hertz, it's not like anyone has ever got excited by what digital technology could do for Hertz. If you ever check into a hotel, you don't get the feeling that lots of people loved what could be done. It's all driven by risk aversion. It's all driven by minimizing chargebacks. It's all driven by process and protocol and what's easiest to repeat. You know, you fly with an airline, it's full of dot matrix printers at the gates rather than tablets. You know, no one really wants to change unless they have to. And I think management consultants do a good job of satiating that sort of the itch rather than the problem. That's a very charitable take. I, 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 <laughs> I, I think you're right. And I think, uh, I, I mean, the point you made, nobody ever got fired for buying a 30 second spot. You know, it's like, no, exactly. you're yeah. going to do what's safe. Yeah, we, we are sort of destined to repeat mediocrity because that works for most people in their careers. So one of my favorite posts that you put out uh, in the last couple of months, I'll just read a little snippet of it. And then I'd love to get your take on this. So if all of us had never had Uber, would taxis <laughs> seem like a great invention? If, we'd, if all we'd ever had was Airbnb, would hotels be amazing? If we'd only had e-commerce, would shops feel like magic? This is a really interesting post because as I was reading it, I thought, yeah, that's really interesting. If e-commerce was the default, then going out shopping would actually be an amazing experience. <laughs> what, where, did, where did this come from? And, and, and do you actually think that these, that these are true? You know, well, this is a nice post to talk about, actually, because it's quite a good demonstration of my style. Where it's quite, you know, people can, can see this and think I'm stupid. People can see it and think I'm cynical. People can see it and think I'm, I'm sort of miserable. And that's not true at all. It's, it's a sort of playful question. It's an understanding of Uber and how wonderful it is. It's a complete appreciation of Airbnb and how sort of magical it can be. You know, a while ago, I sort of wrote a quote about Airbnb being the world's largest accommodation provider that doesn't own, you know, any hotels. You know, so it went viral for that quote. And in a way, this is sort of me revisiting that landscape and just saying, you know, for years and years and years, the predominant, sorry, not years, for, for the last sort of five years, the predominant viewpoint has been that every single tech company is full of geniuses and they're going to wipe the floor in every industry. And, you know, Kavana is going to destroy Carmax and all birds are going to destroy sketches. And I think we're now facing this recognition, the recognition of the fact that these things are not necessarily winner-takes-all markets. Um, these things are not necessarily better in every way. They are just a little bit different. And probably the future is a much more nuanced future. You know, we, we love to say that TV is dead. You know, we love to say that it's the year of mobile. We love to say that, you know, e-commerce is the future. And every single thing that makes a good tweet is actually untrue. And what we're really dealing with is a very nuanced pictures where, you know, actually maybe Uber is more interesting for rural areas where, you know, taxis, the model for taxis is more problematic. You know, maybe Airbnb is wonderful, but has limitations when it comes to its ability to scale beyond a certain number of hosts, because not everyone on this planet is a good host. 
Um, not everyone on this planet is a good guest. So it, it's a way to sort of deliberately provoke debate without being sort of mean in my intentions and just to get people to think about things from a different direction. Yeah, the, the key takeaway there, I think, is the question, is innovation always a good thing? Yes, yes. In, in particular, uh, when I look at things like cryptocurrencies and, you know, obviously that landscape will evolve and obviously there's a lot of potential for that sort of philosophy. But at this moment in time, the idea of paying for anything with any cryptocurrency of any size, um, unless you're doing something illegal, is completely absurd. Um, the process is absolutely batshit crazy. And that there aren't people going around going, what? <laughs> What's going on? The people are not saying that. And instead, people are paying $7,000 in gas fees to have their transaction for a piece of virtual land declined. The fact that people aren't going around going, holy shit, this is dumb, um, is astonishing to me. So you, you just opened up uh, a, a big topic. So I definitely want to ask you about Web3 web and crypto. And you're in Miami, which I don't know if there's anything to do with your, your, uh, your, 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 your love or hate of crypto, but this is like, you know, crypto capital of the world. So I'll give you my 10 yeah. second take yeah. on, on crypto and you can tell me. So, and this is not crypto in general. This is more so Bitcoin and sort of the coin craze. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, the idea that you can say, a coin is worth $40,000, $80,000, $100,000 going to a million. The fact is you have a currency or you have, a, I should say, an asset that is being traded amongst people who believe in that asset. Anybody outside of that belief system would not pay that price. And so I wonder if there's any durability to saying, you know, this item I'm holding in my hand is worth a million dollars because Tom is going to pay me a million dollars. But I don't know if the sample size of you know, whatever it is, 50,000 people, 100,000, even even a few million people, if that really denotes value, what's your take on, on the kind of Bitcoin craze in particular? Yeah, that's a very big question. I mean, I liked where you were just going. And I think the fact is that there are sort of believers and non-believers. And in order for this thing to be sustained, you know, I'm not saying it's a pyramid scheme. I'm not saying it's a, you know, a scam or a sort of Ponzi scheme, but I am saying the prices are dependent on either more people coming in or perhaps at best the same number of people staying in the system. And therefore, the whole thing is a sort of system full of people that need people to believe in it. And it's that sort of desperation and it's that sort of emphatic cult-like status to it all where people have shown sort of derision towards people that don't understand it and people seem quite desperate for the mainstream to get it and when they don't they get quite angry with them but those are the sort of the the bits of it that make me think i think we're okay without this you made, you made an interesting observation actually which is but i think by being in miami the, it has sort of made me particularly riled up by this actually because the city is so full of a sort of crypto culture of sort of get rich fast and show off your wealth and sort of why would you have a job when you can just sort of buy crypto that I find quite sort of obnoxious and quite sort of, you know, superficial and sort of facile in a way. Um, I mean, one thing I can't escape is that of all the people I know who really, really believe in, in crypto, some of them are the smartest people I've ever met. You know, they're way smarter than me and some of them are the most stupid people I've ever met. And it's quite odd because you kind of look at that and you think, how does this work? You know, uh, maybe I am missing it on something. So, so I try to have a very open mind to it, but it's quite hard to not think um, because of the culture of it that it's a bit empty. 
Yeah, and and you you hit on something else there, which is that folks who are true believers are also coincidentally the ones who are making a lot of money very easily yes. <laughs> and seeing their net worth skyrocket. And so why wouldn't yes. you want to believe in something that's also very beneficial to you? Yeah, I think in a way that's again why I get a little bit grumpy about it actually because I think, um, you know, I've got reasonable influence. I've got sort of 700,000 whatevers and it's probably possible for me to be part of this. It's probably possible for me to just about sort of manipulate it and make money from it. And I feel deeply uncomfortable with that. So when I see other people doing it, I don't know, it, it does make me slightly sort of um, concerned about people's motives or their, you know, the, the degree to which they, they sort of care about what happens as a result of what they say. And, but, you know, I, I do try to keep an open mind to it. You know, the scarcity thing I find quite interesting because it almost reminds me a bit of branding in a way. You know, like the main reason why Bitcoin is worth so much is because it's the sort of ultimate brand of crypto. And then you almost get sort of second tiers, you know, like sort of Solana or Ethereum, which you're almost the sort of, you know, they're the sort of Pepsi to the Coke, you know, they're the sort of challenger brands. And they all have a sort of plausible narrative, right? They all have enough about them that gives people something they can hold on to as a reason to sort of justify the valuation. But ultimately, I can't help but think, you know, if something's scarce, but completely pointless, its scarcity is 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 less important than its complete lack of utility. So that's gotta be a tweet. <laughs> that was great. So let let's expand that to the metaverse because this is something again I think has a lot of skeptics. You know, do we really need to eat a taco in the virtual world? Uh, do I need to buy land in in the metaverse? What's your general buy-in to the metaverse and you know, Facebook's, or I guess Meta now, has a clear vision that this is going to be a dominant place in the next decade. Are you a believer in this? I don't think so. I mean, one thing to be clear on is no one's really defined what this is. This just seems to be a kind of, you know, it's a bit like everyone's standing up saying dream world, you know, like what's going to happen in the dream world? And you're like, well, what is the dream world? And they're like, you just need to dream about it and it's a world. And you're there sort of thinking, I don't really know what that is. But if enough people talk about it, you feel like it must be real. But everyone's dream world is different to anyone else's. And it's all based on what angle you come into this from. So if you work in AR, you know, this dream world is a sort of AR experience. If you work in blockchain, this is a sort of 3D internet built on blockchain. If you work in advertising, this is a new place for brands to be. So it's all what we want it to be. The technology will be very, very difficult for many reasons, not least the um, type of screens that we would need and the type of headsets that requires and the connectivity. So I'm aware it's probably never going to happen for technical reasons. I do think it's a useful debate. I think what we see is since about 2007, we've had more and more screens in our life. We've spent more and more time online. Now, for most people in the sort of demographics that we care about, they will spend more time awake on the internet than awake and not on the internet. So actually, real life is now the thing that we decide to do occasionally. And most of our life is online. And it's possible to imagine how that may carry on. You know, it's possible to imagine how kids may learn more and more after school with screens. It's possible to see how they may spend more time playing games. So maybe we will enter this world where actually our reality matters less and our virtual lives matter more. But I don't think most people want that. I think we may start to see, in fact, the opposite. I think we may start to see 
you know, parents demanding that they use that kids use their screens less. I think we may start to see us retrench parts of our life. I think we may start to see, you know, conversations like this become seen as worse than doing this in real life over a beer. And my hope is that we start to use technology more to sort of amplify our humanity and to sort of go out more and to have sort of richer, real experiences rather than to try to sort of replace them in a way. So that that leads me to a post that, um, or a big conversation that I've seen you write about a little bit, which is the whole trend of remote work. As we're as we're uh, we're recording this, just a few days ago, Airbnb announced that they're going to go to a, a remote work first culture, and the reason that they've done that, according to Brian Chesky, is that he's looking at what new companies, not established large companies, but what are the newest companies doing, and you know the trend there clearly is an embrace of remote work. Do you think that this is long term? You've also said I should mention that during the pandemic, a lot of trends that we were running towards were now moving away from because they're not yes. permanent changes. So, what's your take on on on, the, on this remote work trend? Oh, these are all very big conversations. Um, I mean, one, we we have to recognize that you know most people in our industries knew that Zoom existed before. And we didn't use it, not because we thought it was expensive or we didn't have screens, but because we realized its limitations. And there are times when I almost think that people have forgotten what it's like to meet face to face and they've forgotten how sort of beautiful it can be. I am also aware that people who talk about how great remote work is tend to be people that are towards the middle or the late stages of their career. It's a little bit like, you know, assessing a 747 that's flying at 35,000 feet and three engines turn off and is able to sort of land safely with one engine. And then people go, and what? You know, why the hell do we put four engines on this thing without realizing that we all have to take off? You know, we learn so much in person in the sort of formative stages of our careers. We make friends in, in offices in the, the sort of formative stages of our careers. We, we build a network which then helps us for life. So we have to remember that. I've been staggered by how miserable everyone is. Like, I am not the world's most outgoing person. Uh, I'm not immensely social, socially capable. You know, I hate small talk. But I have loved working in advertising. You know, I, I have really, really, really enjoyed going to work sometimes. I've enjoyed spending time with people in the office after work. I've enjoyed banter. I've enjoyed spontaneous um, lunches for people's birthdays and then people not going back to the office. I enjoyed pitches that went until four o'clock in the morning. I have really enjoyed the characters and the humanity of, of our industry. And I now see lots of people talking about these things as if it was very inefficient. You know, you see people say, oh, you know, I, you know, I can't believe I used to spend two hours going into the office just to have to be next to a smelly IT person who couldn't fix my computer. You know, everyone's become sort of sociopaths. You know, you decided to move two hours away from the office. Like no one forced you to want a house with a garden. No one forced you to, you know, assume that the only possible school that was good enough for your kids was one, you know, three hours away. Um, you made these assumptions about life and you chose your life. And now you're very angry about the fact that you have to sort of return back to a situation that you made happen before. So I get very confused. I mean, the, the obvious solution is for people to find their own way. You know, there should be a much more thoughtful approach towards how we work, which includes where we work. And a lot of how we work involves, you know, asynchronicity as well as place. It involves processes, it involves technology that can make us work better. 
It involves us focusing on the things that matter. And ultimately, I think we need to do a lot fewer things much better. We need to spend quite a lot of time in the office next to lots of different people. We need to spend quite a lot of time at events. We need to spend quite a lot of time looking around shopping malls and seeing what it's like to buy the shampoo brand that you work on. Um, And we need to spend a little bit of time at home. But I think people have become a little bit depressed and they haven't realized it. I think that, that that all makes a ton of sense. And the one line that really jumped out at me there was that people look at these things as inefficiencies. Well, inefficiencies yes. is called life. Yeah. That, that's what life is. <laughs> yes. it's, it's really strange. You know, if, if we wanted a really inefficient li- efficient life, we could probably just kill ourselves. I mean, like that would be a really, you know, that would save a lot of time, wouldn't it? That would save the planet. Or we could have kids and then we could kill ourselves. You know, we could eat all of our meals from tablets. We could never leave the house and employ, you know, minimum wage workers to deliver everything to us because it's a waste of time to go to the shop and buy milk. You know, going to the shop and buy milk is not, you know, a dream activity, but it's quite nice. I mean, it's it's quite nice to go down some steps. And to, you know, nearly get run over, that makes you feel a little bit alive. It's nice to then go to a store and, you know, decide that you're going to have some crisps or chips at the same time. It's nice to walk back and see a new outdoor ad on a bus stop. It's nice to look at the clouds. I don't know. I don't know what's happened to people, you know, but Netflix isn't that good. You know, maybe you've saved all this time and it allows you to um, watch Netflix more. You know, I personally, I'd rather be on a pitch, you know, in a bad hotel in Stockholm nervous about my section i need to present the next day at three o'clock in the morning i'd rather be doing that than in bed watching you know some god-awful reality tv show yeah bang on okay let's let's jump i, I know we're sort of jumping here but you you cover yeah. so much that, that's great <laughs> so your take on d2c brands i found really interesting so you wrote did anyone really think we'd sit at home managing 50 different subscriptions to get 100 products delivered to our homes in 75 different boxes and i thought to myself i actually laughed because when i read this yesterday i thought i think i've had four deliveries today so far Amazon and DHL and FedEx. And, and it's just, it, we don't even think about it. Between me and my wife, we just order things. What's your take though on D2C as an industry? Because for the last few years, there's been this absolute explosion. Everyone's on Shopify. Everyone's getting funded. Do you think we really have an appetite for these specialized niche brands? In, in some places. I mean, when you read out my stuff, it makes me sound so grumpy. So I'm a little bit horrified. Here's the deal. I love amazing products. I love companies and people that are passionate about creating a brand. I love things that are differentiated. You know, I see method shower gel and I see the bottle and it kind of seduces me. It gives me genuine pleasure to use method shower gel in the in the shower. You know, occasionally people will find a, a shampoo or they'll find a shoe polish or they'll find a type of you know scrubber for the bathroom they just love and and these products need to exist and i love that they do i think part of the problem is that people in their own companies tend to forget what it is to be a normal human and if you work on a brand of coolers you forget that most people are as excited about their brand of cooler as they are for their brand of light bulb or their brand of toolbox or their brand of drill. You know, so it's a little bit interesting to some people, but not that interesting. And if you have a differentiated differentiated product, it's different. But by and large, most people are just trying to get through the day. You know, by and large, most people wake up and they're worried if the bill's going to come through the mail. They're worried their daughter's looking a little bit depressed again. 
you know, they're worried that their wife or their husband, you know, seems to be sort of disappearing for strange amounts of time during the middle of the day. And what does that mean? They're not there thinking, you know, is this brand of meat, you know, all that I'm about, you know, is this a purposeful brand of meat that I'm about to consume? People don't have time for this stuff. So I think there's enormous opportunity for bundling. I think um, Amazon has completely missed a trick by not offering a kind of weekly bundle and a monthly bundle where you basically say, hey, Amazon, I just need to keep my house clean. Give me everything I need. I've got three bathrooms. You know, I'm not particularly clean. Got a dog. You know, send me stuff to keep my house clean. Send me stuff to keep my, my car clean. Send me stuff to look after the kids. You know, I've just had a kid. I've got no idea what I'm supposed to buy. Just give me all the stuff. And then it would come in a box. And things like that seem quite sensible. But this idea that we're all going to give a shit about what type of sparkling water we have and what type of milk we have and what type of you know, chocolate shake we have and, and that we're going to subscribe to all these brands and then get all these deliveries, it, it sort of puzzles me that more people aren't able to see the world in a logical way because I don't think I've got any particular gifts. I just think a little bit. Well, I think it's also not a coincidence that a lot of these innovations happen on uh, on the coast, and so it's it's you know it's California, <laughs> it's New York, it's places where a lot of people. And, and listen, I speak as someone who 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 is probably part of the same group. Yeah, uh, a lot too. of people don't have real problems. You know, yes. like we've got good jobs. <laughs> the pandemic didn't affect us that much. You know, we're healthy. We work. You know, we work remotely. These things that we find as quote unquote problems in our lives are not the problems that people face when they're living paycheck to paycheck or when they're, they've got a sick kid or an elderly parent they're taking care of. And so as you said, you know, the, the perfect flavor and ingredients of my toothpaste, I have no idea what brand of toothpaste I use, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> no, I, I think you've really hit the nail on the head. I actually wrote an article quite passionately about this in the middle of the pandemic, basically saying our problem is we don't really have any real problems. And then I realized it would go down very badly because people get outraged by the suggestion that, you know, that they're worried their dog is fat. You know, that is a real problem. You know, come on, this is significant. It, we're designed for scarcity. You know, we, we are species that are designed to not have enough information, uh, to not have enough food. And therefore, we crave anything that keeps us alive. And no one has really realized this, but for most people, and it's not very well distributed because, you know, there are plenty of people that don't, but for most people who we know, abundance is the problem. You know, we're way more likely to be fat than to be malnourished. We're may, way more likely to have too much information and too much stuff going on than we are to not have enough. And we haven't really been given the tools to manage this. And yeah, what, what you see, you know, part of the reason why I'm a little bit disdainful by D2C companies is because whenever you look at the, the website, they always have a little bit called Our Story. And whenever you click on it, it's always, you know, Joseph and I were backpacking in Peru, you know, when it dawned on me, what would the perfect saucepan look like? You know, we then scoured the world talking to metallurgists around the world to find the most sustainably sourced but beautiful zinc and aluminium mix and we've now created our brand called saucepan love where for 400 dollars you get a saucepan delivered to your house every six months which has been sort of crafted in the inca style and with packaging made out of alpaca wool i mean this probably exists i mean obviously making it up and then you sort of look I can at tell look you're at an advertising because that was actually a phenomenal pitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And then you sort of look at, you're like, oh, who's this Joseph guy? You know, who's who's sort of Leanne? These are completely made up names, were they? So if, if these people exist, I'm sorry. And you think, well, maybe they were chefs. You know, maybe they spent years in kitchens, like, you know, genuinely passionate about saucepans. And then you look at them, it's someone that works at Goldman Sachs and it's someone that writes for Vogue. And you just think, wait a minute, like you just got bored of your job. You went, you know, you did probably ayahuasca in Peru. You realize that, you know, everyone's talking about D to C, so you might as well. You know, you went to your sort of father-in-law who gave you, you know, $250,000. You then went to Gin Lane and got them to do a generic logo. You then went to, um, you know, someone that builds Shopify sites. Then you did a few sort of puff pieces using your friends in PR. And now you've got $10 million in seed funding and you appear to be successful and you go to TechCrunch Disrupt and you talk about reimagining cooking. You know, you decide that you're going to launch your new range of sort of spices that actually have unit economics that make sense. And it just seems so unhelpful and sort of pointless and self-indulgent. And it's not that the world doesn't need good saucepans. It, I just can't help but think if those people spend their time on helping people get access to clean water in Flint, Michigan, that maybe they'd feel a bit happier. You know, if, if they spend their time figuring out a way to do multimodal ticketing across public transit systems, which makes it easier to go from A to B using existing transport, you know, that would be amazing. If they used it to help, you know, people in other countries get microloans or report on, you know, government corruption or a way to help people pay for news, which is good for them. You know, there are plenty of wonderful things that people can be doing that spending their time on. And I'm not sure why these people aren't. Yeah. That, that, that kind of reminds me of something else you mentioned, which is sort of the, you, you framed it as the education system, but this idea that a lot of the things that we need to know in this world, you know, for example, domestic finance, how to digest media in the current age, how to persuade people, how to listen better. What do you, what's your take, especially on, on, this, on this idea of like understanding finance and understanding how to live in this in the environment where this media apparatus is coming at you all the time? Do you think that that can actually be taught? Or is there a reason that people don't, don't understand this? That's a good question. I mean, let me take a bit of a step back in a way. I mean, um, we, we have an entire education system, and I'm not sure if people think that much about what it's for. Again, the whole system was kind of based on the needs of industrialists in the sort of 1800s. And it was basically equipping kids for an age when school books were not particularly easy to get hold of. And an age where information was quite hard to access, you know, people needed to be given enough information and knowledge in order to be very similar to each other, which then allowed them to be employed by factories and they would know enough to not be stupid and they'd be sort of disciplined enough to sort of fit into the system. And it was always about making people the same rather than the best they could be, you know, so that if people are rubbish at maths, we then try harder to teach them more maths rather than going, wait a minute, you know, why don't we teach this person French? And I think a, a good question for us to ask ourselves these days is actually, what is the role of education? Is it to give us enough information to work well? Is it to give us enough information to be happy? Is it to prepare us for the world of work? And I think there should probably be a bit of a movement towards giving us the tools that we need to be sort of happy people that have good relationships with people and who don't screw up their personal finances. And that means probably less of a sort of academic approach and much more of a sort of applied and pragmatic approach. 
I mean, I'm, I'm not in this sector, obviously. I don't really know what I'm talking about. It just seems quite logical for me that we should look at the problems that people have today. Everything from bullying to poor social skills to loneliness to you know massive amounts of depression these days. We should look at how useless people are in, in jobs. I mean, when I came into my first office job, I was spectacularly useless. You know, I remember sitting down at a computer and someone was like, oh, can you just reply to that email, you know, about the, the, the book in the meeting room? And I was like, yes, you know, an email. Uh, uh, dear, dear mom, dear, dear, dear sir, do, we, do I do a comma after this? You know, like, like a letter? I had no idea how to write an email. It took me like five hours. You know, by that point, the meeting already happened. And I'm not saying that school should teach people how to do everything they need in life or that school is there to prepare people for bad summer jobs. But I think having a more thoughtful approach towards what people really need and what they don't need makes a lot of sense. I mean, as part of that, I'm, I'm shocked at how poor most people's math skills are. You know, sounding, again, I'm sounding quite grumpy. You know, but if you say to people, you know, how many people do you think there are, you know, in the US? You know, people don't have a sort of strong sense of these numbers. You know, if 7% of people are left-handed in France, you know, how many people do you think that is roughly? People don't sort of instinctively have this, this sense of, of, of sort of numbers in a way. I think that's something that we could work on as well. Yeah, l- learning how to think is something that, I mean, I, not that I was a great, I was not a great student, but learning how to think is something that um, yes. I think people need to do earlier on and problem solve. And a lot of the young graduates that I see, you know, they understand theory very well, but I actually find better when working with sort of our, our younger employees, the folks that came out of college and, and had an actual life skill that they learned, like, I know how to fix a sink, I know how to build a thing. That's a lot better in many cases than the theoretical stuff that folks like me, frankly, learned where you basically go into a job and you have to relearn everything because it doesn't really apply from a textbook. Yes. Yeah, that's, a, I think, a huge shock. Like, whatever you've studied at university, when you get in the real world, you realize it doesn't work like that. I mean, you know, I, I studied architecture and structured engineering. And you, you go on a site and you're like, oh, you know, how did you um, know to put the beam there? And they're like, oh, that's just how we do it. You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, you know, oh, the, the, the textbook says this is like, yeah, that doesn't work, you know, because it freezes overnight and then it gets moved. You know, you just bung it in there and sort of give it a knock with a hammer and it goes on. And actually, yeah, I mean, things like negotiation, uh, things like selling, things like building relationships. I, I am the world's worst networker. I can't stand the word. I can't stand the concept. I, I get very shy at the idea. I hate the idea of being taught how to do it, but it probably would have been a good thing. And, and like you say, the sort of practical skills. I mean, in Miami these days, if you want someone to mow your lawn, it costs about $150 an hour. If you want to sort of recruit an architect, you can get one for about $80 an hour. And somehow we, we sort of expect people to get in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and spend seven years training to become an architect. And if you decide to leave that and mow people's lawns, you know, you're a loser. I think we've got something wrong. That's actually a great segue to my last question here, which is because this is a business podcast, although I, I, I love every all, all the thoughts you share. But the one thing that you posted that I thought was really interesting recently was you said it'd be a great business idea. You said it maybe wouldn't be so profitable. I think it actually could be profitable. Mm. Digital transformation for small to medium-sized companies. And like you said, there is actually a lot of money and a lot of you know a gr- great living to be made doing things like mowing lawns and cleaning yes. pools and doing landscaping and home services. And I actually think that there's this massive transition happening right now. So boomers are retiring and dying mm. off. 
businesses are being moved from the you know to, from, from the father to the son or the mother to the daughter and bringing these into the digital age with things like clean websites and better mobile apps and better technology and i think this actually is a great business idea but what's your take in general on this i mean do you think that this is actually going to be done or do you think there'll be a whole sector of the economy that just will not be brought into the digital age that's a very good question I was thinking the other day how stupid it is that there are whole categories where everything is so archaic. And then I was thinking about it yesterday. And I think in a way, I can understand why they're not. And they're probably right. It's a tiny example. And hopefully this won't seem like therapy. But my car at the moment is really, really knackered or broken, if you're not English. And every time I drive it around trying to find a garage to have a look at it, you know, they're busy. Uh, and then sometimes you'll give them $150 to diagnose it and they'll sort of say, oh, it's, it's this, you know. So I think I've got a problem with the hoses that connect to my turbo. They gave me a quote for like $1,700, which seems horrific. I then go on the internet and I become an expert in turbo hoses and I now know which part it is and I now know how many hours it should take. And now if I want to get that car booked into a garage, I can either phone up garages for about three hours in that time, I'll get five garages. People don't really understand my English accent in Miami. So there's quite a good chance that I'll never be able to talk to anyone properly. And after about two hours of making these phone calls, I'll just have found out virtually nothing other than here are three garages I should take it along to and they may take a look at it. And then when you get there, they won't be expecting you. And obviously, the sort of um, the tech approach to this is think, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could Fill in a form, say the problems that you have. It gets emailed out to 10 different garages. You know, they can all bid on your job and you can select the cheapest one. You can look at reviews. But I mean, probably these businesses are all very busy. They're all making a lot of money. You know, you, you pay them $150 an hour in labor. You know, they're doing all right. You know, maybe the inefficiencies suit them. You know, maybe the nature of their job is such that they don't need to be answering emails, you know, when actually they spend most of their time with a sort of their head in the hood. Maybe the idea of it being simple so that people can compare prices between different places. Maybe that's the antithesis of what they're about. Maybe they are about information asymmetry. So I think, you know, it's a good example of one of those things where one can't approach the world with our own logic and think that people who don't see it this way are wrong. Actually, maybe they really understand it and they've decided not to. I, I do think there's a sort of happy medium. You know, the number of sort of boutique hotel websites you go on, where it's a sort of amazing, you know, hotel with 10 rooms in Costa Rica and beautiful tree houses. And the website looks absolutely atrocious. And you just think, you know, why did you not just get like a decent photographer to take a good picture and then go on Squarespace? And within sort of five minutes, you could have made a beautiful website. You know, I, I see Airbnbs with the most horrendous, you, know, you see sort of $10 million houses with sort of like here furniture everywhere and photos taken, you know, with sort of old digital cameras where you can see the date and time stamp in the corner. And you think, how can you, how can you own a $10 million house, but then sort of fail to market it at all? So there, there probably are places where you can use a very superficial approach towards technology and just make nicer looking websites. But I also think there probably are whole industries where you can really put that technology in a very deep way and have it so that, you know, their invoicing process is automatic, their CRM process is automatic. You know, the places I emailed for a quote on my car that never replied to me, there's a way for them to actually reply to my emails and maybe follow up a bit later on. So maybe there is opportunity there. Yeah, the, the picks and shovels, I think there definitely is opportunity, as you said, invoicing yeah. and whatnot. But 
What's interesting is I actually have had this conversation with my plumber. So we, we bought mm. a new house and I've, I've had a plumber come, you know, maybe mm. three or four times in the last couple of months. And I've said to him, you know, why don't you have a, a like your, your website is very simple. You know, your email address is like a Gmail. And he said, John, I am so busy. Yeah. I don't, I don't need, I'm not, there's no need for more customers. And I think the thing that a lot of us miss is if you are, you know, someone who works in home services or if you have the best restaurant or the hotel in Costa Rica that's always getting booked because of referrals, yeah. it's not necessary for you to do these superficial things, which we do in businesses where our brand actually makes a huge difference. Yes. If you're a great plumber and your and your neighbor recommended the plumber and the guy's booked up, he has he doesn't need a good website. Yeah, yeah. I am I'm very interested in the question. You know, I, I would never come to this saying these people are wrong and we are right. But also, you know, if, if he did make a beautiful website and there was a sort of WhatsApp button which allowed you to sort of text him, you know, maybe that would make his job a little bit easier because he could reply to yeah. more people by text. You know, if he's so busy and he has an amazing website, maybe he could in, increase his, his, his fees by 50% and then be slightly less busy than he is now, have higher value customers and, and make more money. I mean, maybe he doesn't want to. So these are all interesting things to sort of ponder uh, and certainly to come to not with the expectation that we're right and these people are wrong. So It's so funny because those are exactly the suggestions that I would make. And I'd say, well, if you did this, you know, and it's amazing, Tom, how many people just don't care. They don't, <laughs> they, they don't want to make more money. They don't want to work more. Yeah, they want right. to get their job done and leave. Yeah, but it's yeah. funny that you and I have this yeah. conversation and it's like, why, why don't you want to do more? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's really funny. Yeah, because it's complicated. You know, you make a nice website, you charge more money. That probably means you have more obnoxious customers. You know, that probably means that when you do your call out fee, you get more angry people because they're like, what? You know, I paid so much just for you to come here and tell me you can't do it. You know, so these people may know way, way, way more than us. So this was awesome. Where can people find you and anything you, you want to share? They can find, I think LinkedIn is probably the best place. I, I think I'm Tom F. Goodwin on LinkedIn. I do have a sort of brand new book coming out, which if you like what I say, you'll probably like. It's called Digital Darwinism 2 or something like that. I, I wrote a book before called Digital Darwinism. It was quite good. Then the publishers asked me to write a brand new book. I said no, because it was a lot of work. Then they told me to update the book. And then I basically rewrote the entire book from scratch. And it's much, much better. So it was a commercially a terrible decision because in theory, I've just written one book, but actually I've written two. In theory, people who bought it before will think they know the book. They don't. It's a completely different book. So it's called Digital Darwinism. And it's sort of out in the US and Canada, I think in about three weeks time. Beautiful. We'll, we'll link it here. Tom, thank you so much. This was awesome. My pleasure. No, really good fun. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple or Spotify lets other folks know that you love the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right.